Research shows that people today have trouble prioritizing their hobbies. As many as 6 out of 10 would want to spend more time on outdoor activities. So, how can we find a better balance between work and passion? Can they be the same thing? In this interview, I meet Mark Watts, son of the Zen philosopher Alan Watts, who created the legendary Live Fully Now speech. I'm Christopher Triumph. This is the podcast Live Fully Now. Hi. Hi. <laughs> nice to meet you. Nice to meet you as well. And welcome to California. Thank you so much. I hope it's not impolite to ask, who are you? Well, that's interesting. Um, I'm Mark Watts, and my father was a philosopher named Alan Watts, and I'm the director of the Alan Watts Center and curator of the Alan Watts Archives. Who was your father? Well, my father was uh, uh, an Englishman. He was born during the First World War, 1915, and his parents um, were middle-class British people, uh, very interested in their son's education and that he would have a a good life. So they sent him to King's School, Canterbury, uh, which was really a preparatory school for uh, entering the Church of England. You know, if you wanted your son to become a priest, you would send him to King's School. But before long, he became interested in the Orient. And his mom was a teacher at a boarding school. And many of the students there were the children of missionaries on their way to China. They would leave their children there. And then when they came back, they would bring her gifts, um, tapestries, vases, uh, beautiful things. And these would end up in the parlor. And Alan wasn't allowed to go in there and play because he might break something, but he would sneak in. And he was fascinated with these landscapes and just the images that he saw. And so soon he began to read everything he could about Eastern thought, or mostly Eastern culture to begin with. And so he found uh, Saxe-Romer books about Fu Manchu and Lafcadio Hearn. And then soon he found a book called Glimpses of Forgotten Japan. And that was it. After that, he was off. Everything he could read about Eastern religion and philosophy, uh, he just consumed. Was he planning also to enter the church or... He was, but at the age of 14, he declared himself a Buddhist. Okay. And they said, jolly what, the man's a Buddhist. <laughs> and thought that was just great. Yeah. How many 14-year-old Buddhists were there in England by that time? Just about none. <laughs> that was him? Yeah. Well, as a matter of fact, he started to correspond with the, the local um, Buddhist society in London. And he would sign his letters, Alan Watts, King's School. And so they assumed that they were uh, corresponding with a master and probably a senior master at King's School. So eventually they invited him to come and speak and he came with his father. And everybody in the audience was absolutely shocked when the father sat down and the son went up to speak. Mm-hmm. But uh, Christmas Humphreys, who was a barrister who was uh, in charge of the lodge, said, uh, but he was talking Zen, pure mm-hmm. Zen. And so he became a regular at the lodge, eventually became the editor of The Middle Way, which was their journal, and um, was fascinated with uh, all of that. But then in 1938, he moved to America. Why? um, Well, uh, he married a woman, um, uh, uh, the daughter of, uh, her name was Eleanor Everett, but her mother was Ruth Everett. And she was uh, quite a woman. She traveled all over. She was fascinated with Eastern philosophy. And so she came to the Buddhist lodge and dragged her daughter along. And that's how they met. But she decided that she was going to New York to study at the first Zen Center. And so she dragged the young couple with her. But when Alan got there, uh, it wasn't anything like the community in London. 
which was a vital intellectual exchange with a lot going on. There was one old man uh, teaching the Hakuin method in a room on one of the avenues, and that was it. Um, there were a few people would show up and get their lessons, but there was no discussion or papers or anything. So he began to give talks in bookstores. Eventually, a woman approached him and said, if you would just turn these talks into a book, my husband's a publisher and he would publish them. So he wrote a book uh, called The Meaning of Happiness, which unfortunately was released just as the uh, Germans went into Poland. And so there wasn't much interest in a book called The Meaning of Happiness. And so uh, two years later, uh, he went into the church. Uh, he moved with his wife to uh, Chicago, where she was from. And uh, outside of there by Northwestern University, he attended theological college and in 1944 was ordained as an Episcopal priest. Was he double? Uh, I mean, was he Christian and Buddhist? Well, if we're to judge by the book that he wrote after getting out of the church in 1950, he was deeply considering uh, Buddhist themes throughout. Uh, because then he wrote a book called The Wisdom of Insecurity. And it was essentially a uh, proactive uh, philosophy based on Buddhist psychological concepts of the permanence of uh, understanding that uh, within the infinite, uh, things are not set. And um, recently, some bloggers have noticed the parallels between that and experiments and writings in physics, particularly wheelwright, uh, that were going on contemporaneously, mm. uh, looking at the world as not being fixed, but our role in it as a, a perceptor uh, is being uh, fundamental to reality. And, and in essence, his book was the same way. And he uh, had an outlook uh, that I think was the beginning of the live fully now uh, idea. Okay. At that point, and you have like how many recordings of your father? Four uh, hundred reels, yeah, and um, most of those were field recordings. Um, there are about a hundred early radio shows, uh, so two, th three quarters of them were made in the field. Not everything is available yet, or no? Well, we have about a hundred uh, recordings in circulation, and uh, so that's half of the archive. Um, partly that was a limitation due to the distribution of tape and then CD. Uh, so now with uh, everything being online, we're actually going to launch an effort this spring uh, to complete the digital archive and get everything available online. Okay. Yeah, so yeah. We're, we're working on it. Uh, he was a celebrity. Very much. Uh, by the mid-60s, he was uh, being asked to speak all over the country. Uh, he was in uh, various magazines, Playboy, Red Book, Elle. Um, his books were selling by the millions. Uh, he had several bestsellers, including his first one in 1957, The Way of Zen, was a bestseller. Mm. Uh, what, one thing we don't remember is that in the late 50s, there was something called the Zen boom, and actually Eastern thought at first, for the first time, became popular. So, Sora, the reason that we're standing here today is the live full in our speech. Right. How did that come about? Well, after uh, moving to New York, Um, my father received a letter from Dr. Frederick Spiegelberg uh, at the Academy of Asian Studies in San Francisco, inviting him to come and teach Buddhism. And uh, so early in the spring of 1951, he drove uh, out to California by LA and uh, soon arrived and uh, became one of the more popular teachers at the Academy. And the Academy was in some economic trouble. 
And so he decided that uh, his classes were well attended, but it wasn't enough. And he began to give evening talks open to the public. And some of my earliest memories, because uh, I was five and six at the time, were sliding down a wonderful curved banister in the lobby while my dad gave talks inside. And before long, he was invited over to KPFA, the local radio station where he became a guest programmer. And he began a series called uh, The Great Books of Asia. And that was followed in 1956 by Way Beyond the West. And then by 1959, uh, he had a television series uh, that ran for two seasons. And uh, so that, that talk uh, was part of an exploration of Buddhist ideas uh, recorded with that series. And do you th- do you, sorry, but do you think anyone could sell a show called The, books, the Great Books of Asia today? For radio? Uh, possibly. Yeah, uh, I think there's a, there's a lot of interest, but it's a bit dry as a title. And <laughs> yeah, it, was then. it sounds dry. Well, but but uh, people loved it, and yeah. they responded very well. And uh, then when he began Way Beyond the West, that was very popular. Mm-hmm. And so that was, uh, by 1959, that was on in L.A. as well. Uh, but here in San Francisco, he began recording uh, a series of programs uh, on an old uh, set that they made with a big Japanese landscape painting behind him. And uh, one of the ones that he did was uh, talking about death and talking about pain. And so that was part of uh, the one on death. And uh, you know, he precedes it by talking about you know, whether an animal fears his own passing and, uh, or does the animal live in the present? And are we actually missing our lives by all of this anticipation? And, uh, and so that leads into the section of the talk that was selected. Maybe we should listen to it, right? Sure, yeah. yeah. When in civilized societies, we spend so much of our time living for the future, we become very much like those celebrated donkeys, you know, that have uh, a carrot fastened on a stick that's tied to the neck, you know, behind here, and it comes over and there's the carrot dangling in front of them. They pursue it, pursue it, pursue it, but can never reach it. And so in exactly the same way, it's that way with us. My goodness, don't you remember when you went first to school? You went to kindergarten. And in kindergarten, the idea was to push along so that you could get into first grade. And then push along so that you could get into second grade, third grade, and so on, going up and up. And then you went to high school, and this was a great transition in life. And now the pressure is being put on. You must get ahead. You must go up the grades and finally be good enough to get to college. And then when you get to college, You're still going step by step, step by step, up to the great moment in which you're ready to go out into the world. And then when you get out into this famous world, comes the struggle for success in profession or business. And again, there seems to be a ladder before you, something for which you're reaching all the time. And then, suddenly, when you're about 40 or 45 years old in the middle of life, you wake up one day and say, Huh? I've arrived. And by Jove, I feel pretty much the same as I've always felt. In fact, I'm not so sure that I don't feel a little bit cheated. Because you see, you were fooled. You were always living for somewhere where you aren't. And while, as I said, it is of tremendous use for us to be able to look ahead in this way and to plan, There is no use planning for a future, which when you get to it and it becomes a present, you won't be there. You'll be living in some other future which hasn't yet arrived. And so in this way, 
one is never able actually to inherit and enjoy the fruits of one's action. You can't live at all unless you can live fully now. That particular talk, I really enjoy. His point, more than anything, was that we should live this day mm. and we should live it to its fullest and we shouldn't be in a state of perpetual preparation uh, for future events. And that uh, only by being focused in the present uh, do we get to live at all and get to experience anything at all. Can you tell me about this place? Where are we? Well, right now we're looking out at uh, the Pacific Ocean, and uh, this is the Point Reyes National Seashore. Uh, this in particular is a road out to a place called Limantour Beach. That's Point Reyes, and then tucked in there is uh, something called Drake's Beach, and it's a long arc. And from this road here um, that goes down to the beach, you can actually walk across and uh, come into this area, uh, uh, which is called Paradise Estates, Paradise Ranch Estates. Okay. And um, uh, so I've uh, bought land here in 1978. Near that mountain, which is Mount Tamalpais, my father had a little place on the side of a mountain that had a very similar feeling to this, uh, eucalyptus trees instead of pines. But it was a place where he went to get away from a lot of what he did to be able to write. And um, he had a beautiful old ferry boat, a uh, 150-foot-long uh, side-wheeler. It was called the Vallejo. It used to go out take workers out to Mare Island shipyards. And um, so he lived there in the 60s. And after a while, though, as his books became more popular, so many people would come, is this where Alan Watts lives? And can I see Alan? And so he, he got to the point of distraction that he really couldn't write. So he got a small cabin up on the uh, mountain and then realized he'd moved into a small cabin with his third wife and he still couldn't write. And so next door, they built a wonderful building out of a, a, a water tank. And I actually got to help do that when I first came back to California. So this is where he ended up writing for the last, uh, well, three years of his life. Yeah. He had the library. And he wrote his journals there. He finished down the watercourse way there, did his autobiography. And um, uh, the, the journals became a book called Cloud Hidden, Whereabouts Unknown. That's where Van Morrison came to hang out with you guys? Uh, yeah, Van came to see my father and he would uh, sit on this, they would sit on the slope together and laugh and talk for hours. And uh, then after uh, my father passed on, he wrote a song, uh, the Alan Watts Blues, which is a beautiful uh, song that has the spirit of the mountain and the feeling of the mountain in it. And uh, th uh, that's why I'm Cloud Hidden, Whereabouts Unknown, uh, which was the name of the book and is the chorus in the song. And uh, a comedian uh, who is very politically active, Tom Smothers, used to come up and talk with him. And I had a stream of visitors, always somebody coming. Mm. But my, one of my favorite memories uh, was coming up there one afternoon and my father was doing calligraphy on the deck and he had all the paper out with stones and he was brushing away. And as I came up, he said, look, and he held it up and the uh, wood grain from the deck had come through in his brush strokes. And to him, these were masterpieces because they had the lee, the, the grain of the wood in them. Uh, and so, um, yeah, it was, it was always something different with him. His yeah. curiosity was very vital. Uh, he would come to answer the mail and there would be three books for him to review and he would look at them and he would give me one and said, read that one and tell me what's wonderful about it. And then he'd take the other two and off he'd go, you know. So, but he was always learning, always yeah. into something new. What does the library mean to you? Um, well, of course, it holds a lot of memories, uh, you know, visiting my father there and uh, lots of great experiences with him. 
Uh, it's also uh, the place where uh, my father passed away uh, and his ashes are there. Uh, so it has uh, deep significance in that way. Yeah, but it's also, I mean, nobody's really taking care of it. No, uh, it's its pretty much abandoned, except for occasional visitors who come to, to who really want to get there. You know, it's down the end of a long, muddy road. Mm. And so um, it, it's not visited much at all. Mm. Yeah. If you would give uh, me and, and the listeners uh, an advice on how to live fully now, what would that be? Uh, don't lose your focus. I mean, it's it's um, so many times, uh, I think of, of Western people as typically being here, of being ahead of themselves. We drive, we do all of these things, you know, that are out here. And it's always important just to be able to sit back and no matter what you're doing and feel your center and not be ahead of yourself. Um, uh, particularly, um, you know, if you're, Uh, in the midst of something that involves uh, interactions with other people, uh, is to give everything its space and and its um, its rhythm. And uh, as my father used to say, you have to go out of your mind to go come to your senses. And it's important to go crazy at least once a day, in the sense of breaking the continuity of thought. And uh, so for me, I I have things that I do woodworking and. Uh, hiking these trails uh, where it's very easy to lapse into the present moment. And these are my meditation mm. and uh, my form of yoga. Thank you so much. Thanks for coming all the way across the world to see me. <laughs> <laughs> my pleasure. Really. This is Christopher Triumph, and you've just heard my conversation with the super inspiring Mark Watts. This podcast is brought to you in collaboration with Volvo Cars and their brand new V90 Cross Country, the getaway car. And in a way, it enables you to live your life fully. Create your own getaway car in the app, build your own Volvo, and thanks for listening. <laughs>